Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. I just think it's an enticement. It's not rocket science. It can be done. I truly believe it can. It's wanton destruction. It's also illegal. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Oh, social media starting to light up over that uh, alcohol comment or those alcohol comments and recommendations from the World Health Organization. If, if, if you want to share or rant or vent, you know where we are. We will look into it in the fullness of time. But if you want to share or rant or vent about the World Health Organization and what it's currently saying to do with women and booze, which it is saying, and I'm reading a direct quote now from section two, prevention of drinking among pregnant women and women of childbearing age, that appropriate attention should be given to this. As I said, if you have thoughts and want to rant and want to... Have a go. Uh, you know where we are. 1857-15996. Good morning to you. Yesterday we promised that we would look more today into the issue of antigen testing and just what does the science say and just who's right and who's wrong. But then again, no one's right and no one's wrong because there's good intent on both sides. We accept that all sides of the discussion have our best interests at heart. But we as people, ordinary people, not scientists, are trying to understand who should we follow, from where should we take our advice. We do our best at all times to take our advice from the science. I want to, I am joined once again uh, from Dublin, from Trinity College by Professor Kingston Mills, who's a regular now on the Opinion Line. Once again, good morning, Professor, and welcome to the programme. Good morning, PJ. Good to, good to have you with us again. Professor Mills, you yourself have particular views with regards to antigen testing and how we might go about using it properly. So, properly being the appropriate word. Can I just start by explaining in the, sort of the terminology and the concepts? Because I think there's some misunderstanding even within some of the, the people that are, uh, that are discussing this in the media, the experts. So, so these are called rapid testing, and, and, and there are two or three different types of rapid testing for SARS-CoV-2. One of them are these lateral flow antigen tests, which is a bit akin to a, a pregnancy test, which you put either saliva or, or, or the, the liquid from a swab onto this strip, and it turns uh, a color or it changes with a stripe on it after 10 minutes. And that detects the protein from the virus that might be in your nasal cavity or in your saliva. 
The second one is uh, the second type of rapid test, which is not an antigen test, but it's a rapid test. It's called a lamp test. This is a, a, a sort of a version of PCR, which is much quicker, much easier to be done. It can be done in a half an hour, but it's more sensitive than the, the rapid um, antigen lateral flow test, and it's less sensitive than PCR. So that's the sort of groundwork. So everybody has lumped in the, in the media talking about these, as, uh, calling them all antigen tests, which is incorrect. They're not all antigen tests. They're rapid tests. That's the mm-hmm. correct term. Terminology for them. So just get the terminology out of the way. So I was part of this Mark Ferguson group that reported directly to the Minister for Health on this. Mm. And our recommendation was that these would be used in certain settings, such as return to work, schools, colleges, um, sporting activities, um, you know, cultural events, etc. And that there should be several um, what they call pilot studies done where they look at how effective they were at, at, at detecting people that were that were infectious. And the really important point is that it detects people when they're at the peak of their uh, virus load, when they're really infectious, when they're more likely to transmit it. And it was never intended that these would replace PCR. So that's been, people are comparing them with PCR and saying, oh, they're not as sensitive as PCR, therefore we can't use them. They're not intended to be as sensitive as PCR. They're not intended to be used in place of PCR. They're intended to pick up people that you otherwise wouldn't pick up in a situation mm-hmm. where you'd never use a PCR test. So that's, the, that's sort of the background to it. Right. And um, where do you stand or are they on the basis of what science tells us today? Are they suitable? for travelling? Are they suitable for an All-Ireland final or a large music gig to have people antigen tested or rapid tested, let's use that term, rapid okay. tested at the gate going in? Okay. Okay, I think I think um, for the for the for the football and for the the the, the culture events definitely, and they've already been used in other countries uh, for those sort of situations. At the FA Cup final and the League Cup final in the UK, they, there were ten and fifteen thousand people there that everybody went into had a, a rapid lateral flow antigen test the morning of the event. Uh, for travel, it's a little it's a little different, and you know there are mixed views on this. Personally, I think that the lamp test is probably more appropriate for travel because it's of its accuracy. With a football match, um, you're never going to, you know, there was, a, there was a match here in Dublin, a Leinster match last week where they had 1,200 supporters and they weren't tested because even though Leinster had asked to have a, an earlier um, event where they would test everyone, but the authorities, you know, didn't advise them to, to test, which, you know, it's, it defies logic, to be honest. But, but the point I'm making is, so nobody was tested going into that event, but if they had tested people, they might have found two or three. And you might say, well, what's, what's, the, what's, what's the problem with two or three that were positive? If you found two or three that were positive, they could have come across maybe 20 others in the course of being there, and then you'd had 60 people that would be affected. Mm. So they would be all prevented if you'd done the, the lateral flow test. In, in, in Barcelona, they did a, um, um, an outdoor um, gig where they had tested everyone the morning of the event, and they found a significant number. I mean, it was small. I think it was, you know, in the tens. But again, 10 people in, a, in an event of 10,000, mm. you know, that's enough to infect a lot of people. So if you get them out of it, you know, you, you, you've, you've, you've reduced the transmission of the virus. So, so they do have a place. We had the pilot event last week as well in Ivy Gardens with 500 people at it. And we have quite a number of pilot events planned in theatres and other halls around the place. There's one coming up, for example, here in Cork Opera House on the 10th of July. To, to not have tests conducted in advance of those events, is that an opportunity missed? Because they weren't conducted ahead of Ivy Gardens. 
Yeah, I mean, it is an opportunity missed, I think. I think if the, if the numbers of cases nationally go down um, below where they are now, the, the case for doing these will be diminished. But if those numbers stay at the level they're at or increase, and especially if the Delta virus gets hold here, then we definitely need to be doing um, testing to allow activities that we haven't been doing for the last six or nine months. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the really great things about these tests, they can pick up the variants just as effectively as, as um, the original viruses. In fact, a method of the, the, the rapid lamp test that we're using here in Trinity, we're now adapting, colleagues of mine are adapting it so it can discriminate between a Delta or a Beta or an Alpha variant and that's something mm. that the PCR test that in its current form cannot do yeah. so what they have to do with the, with the PCR testing after they've done the test they take some of the, the nucleic acid and they sequence it to see what's, which, which virus it is that's very laborious mm. and it's only done in a small proportion of the samples so the numbers we hear for Ireland with the Delta variant have been around 100 are probably a fraction of what they really are because we haven't sequenced enough viruses to know. Mm. In the UK now it's 75% and the big deal about the the Delta virus is that um, the vaccines um, don't work as effectively, especially one dose of the yeah. vaccine. After it's two doses, there's, there's new new evidence from Public Health England this week that says after two doses, Pfizer and and AstraZeneca are both very effective. So that's at least that. Uh, can, 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 yeah. can I just clarify that? Because again, the public health people have been giving, giving in my view, misleading information oh. on this, including Public Health England, I have to say, not just the Irish authorities. So what they're saying is that two doses of vaccines um, prevent hospitalization. But in fact, you know, that, what, that doesn't say, that doesn't mean that it prevents an infection or transmission. So, uh, you know, preventing hospitalization means you prevent very severe disease yeah. with COVID-19. But the bar is now much higher than preventing severe disease. We want to prevent transmission so as we stop the, the virus from spreading. And if a virus is still spreading, other people are going to get infected. So, so that, that, that's, that's misleading information saying that it's very good news that it stopped. It is very good news that it stops people going to hospitals, but it's not the end game. We need a vaccine that stops people getting infected, and that's exactly what the mRNA vaccines do. Okay. So the mRNA vaccines are 90 plus percent effective at stopping anybody getting even mild or moderate um, um, disease, yeah. which is a different hurdle. These would, be, these would be Pfizer and Moderna. So are yeah. you saying to me, Professor, that when you are fully vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna, your chances of picking up Delta are much reduced? It's, it's 90 plus percent effective at stopping mild or moderate disease either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines wow. with the Delta variant, which is, wow. you know, fantastic. That, that's, that's, no, that's very solid evidence. That yeah. is, that's really good. Just before I move on, Juan, I want to talk a bit more about, about vaccines. Be, before I move on, uh, is, is, I don't know whether this is a kind of a question, fact or, fact or myth. <laughs> there's, a, there's a belief out there, Professor Mills, that if we were to roll out rapid testing, uh, that we could reopen everything tomorrow. Fact or myth? I think it's a bit of a myth. I mean, you know, the, 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 I mean, I, I think we all agree, even those that are strong proponents of rapid testing, that they're not 100% um, effective at picking up all cases. So they will miss cases. So you, can't, you can never say that if you have a negative test in a lateral flow test, that you are safe to mingle with others without wearing a mask, for example. 
because you may miss cases. It's just not sensitive enough to pick up all of them. So, so no, you can't use it to say that everybody who's is negative. It's re- the real value of these tests are picking up the positives, finding people who are, are positive and taking them out of circulation. So you're reducing the overall number of people that can potentially transmit the virus by doing this. Mm. You're not sort of neutralizing everybody and saying everybody is now is now free to go to the to the to the gig or the football match and they're and no one is going to get infected you can't say that with these but it's yeah. about reducing it and reducing it to such a level that you stop the transmission eventually yeah. so that's the that's the caveat i think i'd add you know what i'm what i'm hearing is and as you can appreciate i'm just a layman uh, my listeners are just lay people what i'm hearing professor mills is a lot of experts yourself included and many others who they all agree that these tests are useful. What they disagree is the level of usefulness. Would I be right there? Yeah, I think you're probably that spot on, Vijay. Um, I think I think you know you know I think some of the the the, the, the public health doctors are understandably nervous about um, people you know using the going to the going to the supermarket buying the, this this test and then finding that they're negative and saying well great I can I can I can do what I want now and that's that that's that's the big concern with it. But see, we've never really advocated the testing group net didn't really advocate sort of broad public use of it. It was really in in as a means of getting people safely back to work, back to universities, yeah. to school and to events. And, and that's, the, that's the real benefit of these. It's all about testing people in the context with the, where they normally wouldn't be tested. And okay. that's the key to it. Okay. Let me move on to uh, vaccines for a few moments because I read again uh, reports that you are now one of the voices advocating for mixing the doses. Again, I'm, I have to uh, beg forgiveness, Kingston. I know there's a term for this. I forgot. Heterologous vaccination, it's called. Heterologous <laughs> vaccination. So I get one AstraZeneca and then my second one is a Pfizer. The perception, at least what you read from NIAC, is they don't like this idea. You do. Um, I certainly do, and all the scientific. I've been working in the vaccine field for about 35 years now, and um, it has been um, shown for decades that mixing vaccines is a very effective way of boosting the response um, with, with, with different types of vaccines. So, for example, um, um, priming with one type of vaccine, priming means the first dose, and then coming with a second dose with a different one, gives a much stronger response than if you give the same dose, the same vaccine. For the first and second dose, this is going to be become a particularly big issue with the, the what we call the adenovirus vectored vaccines. These are the this is the, the Johnson Johnson Janssen and the the, the AstraZeneca and and, and the, the reason is you get what's called anti vector immunity. In other words, when you what what the virus what the vaccine is is an adenovirus with a bit of the SARS-CoV-2 DNA in it. And it, it creates a response not only against the, the SARS version bit of it, but also against the adenovirus bit. And unfortunately, that response against the adenovirus bit stops the, the virus getting into the cells in the second immunization, which means that the immune response generated is not as strong. And that's not a problem with protein vaccines inactivated vaccines or mRNA vaccines. It's mm. a particular problem with, with vectored vaccines. Mm. Well, so, without, so, uh, well, I, I don't obviously want to get too technical, but what I no, think, no. What I think <laughs> you're saying is, and again, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I may be, you have two types of vaccines out here that work in two different, different ways. but similar ways. So by mixing the two methods, 
you could actually end up with a better result. Exactly. And, and in fact, lots of countries not only are doing it, but they've actually published data showing the benefits. And, and there's two d- bits of data in particular that are important on this. One is from Spain, where they gave people the Pfizer vaccine after they'd had the AstraZeneca vaccine. And there was a 45-fold increase in the neutralizing antibodies. These are key antibodies that stop infection. And earlier studies had shown when you boost um, AstraZeneca after AstraZeneca vaccine, there was a three to six-fold increase. So it was a dramatically stronger booster effect when you gave the Pfizer after the AstraZeneca vaccine. Similarly, in Canada, a small number of case studies there showed huge increases in the immune responses in people that got the AstraZeneca vaccine boosted with the Pfizer. A study in the UK showed that there was some increase in reactionistic transient side effects, but these were mild to moderate and they were very short-lived. So what the authorities here are saying is they're waiting for further data. I think they're waiting for the full data from that UK study. And and perhaps they haven't read or or they don't believe the Spanish and the Canadian study. I don't know. Um, But the data is out there. And it's not just on on COVID. There's lots of data from other vaccines. Every year we get flu vaccines. Some people would have it every year. Some people would have it every second year. Others would have it, you know, maybe not as frequently. But the, the, the supplier of that flu vaccine can change from one year to another. So you're using a different type of flu vaccine and there's no problem with boosting boosting with a different type of vaccine. So there's no there's no there's no scientific explanation for why this wouldn't be a good thing to do in in my view. So I think we just need to 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 grasp it and look at what other countries are doing with mm. it and look at the data and go ahead with it. Is it also a way if we were to do it that we might get the young vaccinate more quickly. Listen to a statistic from the UK this morning. It's a worrying one. They now have that dreadful thing known as exponential growth in parts of the UK and and they're looking for get as many vaccines into as many arms, as many young arms because they've found that that exponential growth is almost exclusively among young unvaccinated people. Very good point. And um, in fact, but one of the arguments against it has been that with the AstraZeneca vaccine, there are these rare blood clotting events that have occurred. And they say that they're in the younger population. That's why they haven't been given that vaccine to the younger population. But data um, released from the medical regulatory agency in the UK, they have a running statistics every week on the numbers of these clotting events post-vaccination. And what they've shown in the most latest data is that more than 50% of the clotting issues are in people over 50, not under 50. So in fact, uh, even though there are more people vaccinated over 50, but even allowing for that, significant numbers of these events are in the older population as well as the, the younger population. So in my view, that goes out the window, the idea that this vaccine, that the AstraZeneca vaccine shouldn't be given to the younger people. I think it's a very strong case for, for, for actually spreading this vaccine around and then boosting everybody with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. In that case, you wouldn't waste the doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine that we have yes. and you would give everybody really good immunity. I was reminded by another guest on the programme earlier this week and in fact I had read something about it over the weekend of a thing called ring vaccination where you go into an area where there is a severe cluster and you just vaccinate anything with a pulse and and you work outwards from the epicentre. Should we look at that? 
Yeah, that's been done in a couple of countries. There was a, a study I was reading this morning in the New York Times from um, um, Brus- or from Brazil, where they vaccinated a whole city, and they've got now to um, effectively to very close to population immunity, uh, virtually eliminated the the, the 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 virus. And in fact, the whole country of Israel have done the same. Mm. So so Israel has um, around seventy percent of their population vaccinated, or other population at least. And the, the, the instance of, of SARS has gone absolutely sh- shooting down in, in, in Israel. And there's, a, there's good evidence now that they're beginning to get towards population immunity. So that, that is, a, is a, uh, a very sound. I mean, I, I advocated some months ago that we should shift from vaccinating the older population once we had the over 60s vaccinated to the, to the younger ones, mm. because that's where all the transmission was occurring. The transmission in Ireland right now is in, is in 14 to 18 year olds and 18 to 25. And then, and then the next group is the 25 to 35. Yeah. So, in fact, it makes a lot of sense to, to go into, as you said, towns, areas that are, that are, that are um, high prevalence of, of infection. But I'm thinking in particular, it, Professor of Limerick, which had, we had a very publicly uh, advertised surge in COVID recently, whether it was Delta or not, we don't know, but there was certainly a huge surge in yeah. cases in Limerick. Is that what you do? You go in there then and just start vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate? Yeah, well, I mean, there was an, that's right, and there was a proposal to do this in with the with the Johnson Johnson vaccine in certain settings, not certainly cities cities, but settings um, where where it was more difficult to vaccinate, um, and because this was a one dose vaccine, they told to get in there, get one dose done, and get out if you like, and get people vaccinated quickly, and and and, and um, there's some there's some sense in that, but also the the, the idea, as you suggest, of going into to an area that has high prevalence in vaccine. Vaccinating, I think it's it's a good one. But I suppose it's the logistics that are mm. that are the, the biggest obstacle to this. It's it's how you divert resources from the nationally to just one location. Um, I suppose that can be. If there's a will, there's a way, and I, I suppose it could be done. But that w- that would be the argument against it. Yeah. Um, just one question has just come in on on antigens. Just to return for for a minute, Professor. Some people yeah. are saying this is a caller saying that antigen tests pick up people who feel fine. And because they feel fine, they would not have gone for a PCR and that that's a very significant use. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, 100%. I should have said that. The listener is spot on. Um, um, th- these are primarily designed to detect, to detect what we call asymptomatic people, people who have no symptoms and they don't know they're infected. There's no point in using them to detect people that already have symptoms. They should go and get a, a, get a PCR test and have the diagnosis confirmed. It's exactly what we're talking about. It's picking up people who don't know they have it, but they can still transmit when they're asymptomatic. Mm. So it's really important to remove those people from circulation. So this is exactly what this test needs to do. Mm. Lastly, um, I see you've been asking or calling for patient numbers and you said that it might make the vaccination program work better, that we should know about the numbers in the health service. Can you clarify what you mean there a little bit? I, th- I think what that's referring to is um, a patient identifier number. Yeah. So I've been advocating having an integrated IT system where um, everybody in the country is given, I mean, it can be your PPS number. Um, um, and, um, you know, th- that is all linked to your medical records so that when you go into your GP, 
um, and you've had some treatment in hospital, they know exactly what you have. And, the, and this can then be applied to the vaccine. So when you get a batch of vaccine, each, each vial of vaccine has a barcode on it, and you can just scan that barcode into your, your, your own um, uh, GP, or whoever's giving the vaccine, can scan it into your record. So they know not only which vaccine, but which batch of vaccine, because this can be important in the future. So if you, go through, if you change GPs or change cities, you can go in and your information is there. Of course, the IT breakdown and the HSE is, is uh, going to have a significant impact this on the, on the short term. But in the long term, this is a system that many, many, many countries have in place. And we were promised that we would have it by the end of 2020 when Salesforce and another company um, were given the, the job of, of providing um, some sort of IT system for the vaccine rollout. But I've heard very little about it. And I don't know if it's in place or not. I, I uh, look Looking at, at um, you know, what I've read, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure as it is. And, and how would that help the vaccination program if we had that exchange of data? It just provides um, very, very easily accessible information on who has been vaccinated with what. Now, they have a system, and, and so I'm not knocking what they've got, mm. but it's just not an integrated system that integrates between all the different um, centres on all areas of medical records. It's something that, 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 that you know, we spoke about, um, I spoke about this 15 years ago when there was, a, there was an issue around a BCG vaccine and there was an inquiry and I was asked by the Minister for Health at the time to, to chair that inquiry and in their report uh, as a foot of that inquiry we recommended this 15 years ago or more I can't remember the exact date, mm. but, 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 you know, it hasn't happened in the yeah. intervening 15 years. Okay. okay, we'll leave it there for today. And as always, thank you for your time and your expertise. Professor Kingston Mills from uh, Trinity College in Dublin. Kingston, thank you very much. He's from the Experimental Immunology School of Biochemistry and Immunology. Big long title. Professor Mills from Trinity College, always very helpful and clear when he takes part in the opinion line. George says, I got AstraZeneca. They're on about mixing it for my second dose. I'm not sure if the question has been asked there. Is it safe? Not only is it safe, George, but according to Professor Mills, who is an immunologist, it actually would be a good thing to do. It actually provides you with better protection, according to the science and according to Professor Mills. 1850 Not to learn that term now and add it to the list of things I've learned since day one. Heterologous vaccination. Heterologous vaccination. That's what... So if anyone asks you in the table quiz or if it comes up on the two grand minute in the morning when you mix two vaccines, what's it called? It's called heterologous vaccination. There's your word of the day. 1857 Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairymaid Premium Spread. 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. The Two Grand Minute. is Cork's biggest breakfast cash giveaway. Listen to play at 7.40 and 8.40 every day. On Cork's 96FM. Answer 10 questions to claim all that cash. cash, 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 cash. Oh, 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 my God. Oh, the winner. There you go, go, go. A 10 round minute with Gardner's Choice in your local Allied Merchant Store. Make them your number one choice for liquid plant feeds and lawn fertilizer. Casey and Ross in the morning. I actually don't believe it. On
on Cork's 96FM. That story is going to become big. It's going to be a very big discussion point. So we will be doing something on it in the fullness. But for now, the details are coming through this morning of this World Health Organization report. And I'm reading from uh, the Daily Mail, who are on top of it this morning. Their medical coverage lately has been really, really good. And it points out at the start, women were involved in writing this report. They absolutely were involved in writing this report. But it says that women of childbearing age should be banned from drinking alcohol. It's the World Health Organization's latest global action plan. And it calls on countries to raise awareness of alcohol-related harm and its harmful use. Now, the drinks industry has said it's paternalistic and sexist. But the guidance says that booze is associated with increased disease, poor mental health, violence, lost productivity and strained relationships. And only a few weeks ago, I spoke with a liver specialist, a female liver specialist here on the opinion line, who said to me that problem drinking among women was at an all-time high here in Cork, in CUH. The things that she was seeing and the damage to women's livers that she was seeing. As I said, we'll follow it up in more detail, but that's what the World Health Organization in its latest uh, alcohol action plan its global report suggests and strongly recommends that women of childbearing age should not be allowed to drink alcohol. It's gone down like a lead balloon, but that's what it says. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. <laughs> All the stars on one show. This is Dua Lipa. Hi, this is Tiesto. Oh, this is Shane Khan. Hey, this is Anne-Marie. Hey, it's me, Justin Bieber. This is Joe Corey. I go by the name of The Weeknd. The Hit Mix with Shane Bucks on your radio, weeknights from 8. With Lucy's Nissan Charleville. Put a smile on your face with the all-new Duke, the Coupe crossover. LucyMotors.com Corks 96FM PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696 On Corks 96FM Debbie, you were on with us back in late January and you'd just come back from... Uh, Western Australia with the kids. Dad was unfortunately terminally ill. He he has passed away now and you're back in Australia. We talked at the time about you getting over here, how difficult it was to get over, but you were telling me it would be over, even more difficult to get back. So I suppose take it up from there. Um, yeah, just the whole trying it back, we were, knew that um, the goalposts can change at any stage uh, trying to come back into Australia because the, the whole coronavirus thing, they take it so seriously and they just don't take any chances. And if, if there's an outbreak, they'll just, you know, they've no dramas with shutting up shop completely. And two days before we were due to fly back, you now we've, we've been in Ireland since um, January and this was uh, early May that we were due to fly back. So we'd done kind of our time and we were ready to come home. And because uh, I'd left the husband over here as well. So I had the three kids with me in Cork. And uh, yeah, the two days before we were due to fly anyway, they cancelled all the flights because there was uh, an outbreak. I, about two people had gotten in Western Australia. So they're like, so they showed it all up. So um, yeah, so then it became a, a scramble to get across the planet to try to get back. Um, so I was on to a lady that I know who, who does all the uh, flights. 
And I, you know, I was ringing her at three o'clock in the morning, Cork time, and she was emailing me at 2 a.m. her time. We were trying to battle it out, trying to figure out how we could get back. And uh, so we managed to get flights through Germany, through Doha and into Brisbane. Right. So I was, I didn't care as long as I got back into Australia because once you're in, you're in as such. And um, so, yeah, we had to sleep on benches in a, in Frankfurt Airport overnight. The poor kids, I felt so sorry for them, but they were, they were right troopers. They were really good. Mm. What, what route had you planned? Um, well, we were just going to do a one hop through Doha, so Dublin, Doha, Perth. So it's, um, it's as direct as you can go. Um, really, you know, and, it's, and with the kids, I'd done it a few times, so they kind of knew the go of, you know, you got the, the long flight and then you get off and then you get on another long flight kind of thing. And, and they had done that a couple of times, so they, they knew the drill. Um, and I think my, my poor son, when we were going to Germany, and after two hours, the minutes started going down, he was looking at me very worried all of a sudden, I'm like, it's okay, it's supposed to. So um, <laughs> he wasn't used to short flights. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, but they, they were really good about it. But that, that I knew going out to Cork that there, that could happen, that things could get changed and chopped at, at any time. And as many, many people have had their flights completely cancelled and they still can't get back. So I was just very, very happy that we could yeah. get back at all. Really. So you eventually got from Doha into into Brisbane, didn't you? And then you had to do the two weeks in the hotel, yeah, I, I was, uh, again, I was a bit apprehensive about the whole two weeks quarantine. As you can imagine, with three kids, my oldest was three. Uh, the middle one is 10 and the eldest one is 13. So it, it was going to be an interesting dynamic anyway. So, um, but we were lucky. We actually got a two-bedroom apartment with balconies and stuff so you could get your fresh air. Um, you know, we had two bathrooms and stuff in there. And we even had a washing machine and dryer. And it was, as far as all that goes, it was the luxury, you know. It was, um, we had our own little kitchenette and all this carry-on. So uh, you could cook, um, it, which was good because the kids be fussy enough. Like, yeah. So I could order food in from Woolworths or Coles, you know, which is like Don's or Super Value at home. Um, and I could cook the kids' food. Because sometimes they're getting the food that you're giving, you know, you get what you get. And um, they could even be getting Thai green curries or whatever, which is fine for adults, but the kids would be turning their nose up with it and stuff. So... Uh, I was grand that I was able to do my own food as well and, and keep them going and you know because I suppose it's hard enough to try to keep them entertained during the day but if you if you didn't have cooking facilities it would have been yeah you can't leave the apartment of course you just you have to sit oh, still. and is it checked yeah there's a camera outside the door and you're warned like you're brought from like when you go into the airport you're brought to a separate section of uh, international travelers because you're treated as a contaminant to the country which you potentially could be um, and at the time when we got back, India was just exploding with their cases. So, you know, technically there could have been people from anywhere, you know, hopping on the plane in Doha with you to Brisbane. So they're, you're all brought to one area and then you're processed and processed and processed. They love a lot of paperwork. Um, and, uh, you know, which is good. I mean, I agree with the whole thing um, to keep the place safe. Uh, but it is it just it's very tiring as well. At the end of that journey, I was just so tired of it. Um, you're taken in by the army and the cops onto the bus and, you know, just make sure you are who you are and your passport is checked a hundred times over. And um, and then you're put into a facility that's best for you. We say if you have kids or if it's just a couple or whatever, some people were getting shipped up the Gold Coast and I was going to the city uh, with my kids. And um, so, yeah, and again, it's just people are taken off the bus then one at a time processed by the cops and the army lads are bringing in the gear and all this kind of thing. And it's just, it's really regimental and, and strict. But um, uh, but as I say, I, I, I do agree with that system. Yeah. But when the cops 
bring up to the, you're sent up to the room and they're saying to you, anytime that you open the doors of that hotel room, you all have to have masks on. You're not allowed to have windows open in the place behind you in case the air comes out into the hallway. There's a camera looking at you 24-7 and there's people checking it. And if you open the door for any reason without your mask on, you're starting to get from scratch. And, you're like, and, and the kids always just, they were so warned, don't ever open that door because, you know, because they, they're forced you to start for 14 days again. So we weren't willing to take that risk. <laughs> it's it's tough, but I suppose it, it pays dividends then when you see how good things are, say, in, in Brisbane and have been for, for months on end. So you finish your quarantine and then, like, I, I don't suppose, Debbie, we really those of us who haven't been there really understand the size of Australia. Like, Brisbane to Perth, a six-hour flight. Like, that's that's nearly to New York from Shannon. Yeah, yeah. I was actually, you know, I lived in Sydney years ago and I was actually surprised myself that it was six hours. Like, I knew it'd be long, but I thought it'd be that long. I was like, oh, God. So and then I had to explain to the kids, we just have another flight home before we can see Daddy. And then he, and my young, my 10-year-old uh, said, well, how long is it? And I was like, six hours. Like, oh, no, another long one. And... We got on that flight. It was a Virgin Australia flight. And there was no screens on the back of the seats, you know, and the kids are like deprived, poor things. It's a bit of a Ryanair job. You have to pay for all the, the food and all the extra bits, the, you know, your water, your pretzels, whatever you're buying. And that's all extra money for it and stuff. And I'd say your credit card is really suffering from all of this. It's It's got a do not resuscitate tag in it now with the state. It is. <laughs> It's fairly, and I didn't even get my quarantine bill yet. So that's um, because we get the, the double room and, and all that. Apparently, it's going to be close to seven grand. And what? Yeah, I'll have that to look forward to. But then, when, you know, yeah, because it, it's done by, um, and, and my, like you pay for per person, per food, per per meal, and all that kind of thing. And um, because I got the bigger room, like you don't even know saying what you're going to get. So, kind of financially, it's, it's kind of tough as well. Whatever you get, and you have to cough up for it. And that's just the way it is. But um, again, you know that before you leave. Um, but I, I, you, you can, as far as I know, you might be able to pay it in storm and storm carry on. So I have to do that a little bit. It's um, that's just how they do it. Yeah, and I guess it's it's working for them when when you think about it. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It is because uh, we came out of the um, when when we finally got released. Then and we, we were looking at people walking on the streets with masks on and they're close to each other. And it just felt so we've been so institutionalized for the last few months in, in Carpenters. When we got back here, then going to the, um, you know, going to the shopping centre and, and, and like just touching trolleys and touching surfaces and people standing near me and my son, he went to school and he got mobbed by all his friends and I could see the panic in his face. It's like people, <laughs> he wasn't used to, yeah. you know, close contact when anybody was in it. When we were at home, uh, once my dad passed, we kind of bubbled with my, Sean, my husband's mum, because she lives on the same street as, as we do. And, um, and so I kind of, they knew that they, you know, we were doing the whole garden visits and they'd understood all that kind of stuff. So just for him to be mobbed by, you know, 30 of his friends in his class, he was just, it was nearly panic stricken. And I remember his teacher coming up to me and she, you know, she came up really close and I hadn't had anybody besides, you know, the kids nearly coming up that close for me in ages. And it, it, it took a bit of getting used to. You do get a bit institutionalized to the whole coronavirus etiquette, you know, which is, yeah. um, which is good in some ways. We're fine and healthy the whole time, but... Since he came back now, they're starting to cough and sneeze, but it's all only normal coughs. Yeah. It's it's funny that you say that, Debbie, because we're only talking about it here, like, and I'm sure you keep in touch with home. Like, we're starting now to come out. And people are still saying, is it safe? Like, can I actually do that? Institutionalization is a very good word for it. 
they they are a bit worried in in Australia, aren't they now though about the variants? Because seeing some news reports from there last week, there's one variant now that seems to pass back and forth in the open air. So they'll be very worried about that. Uh, they are, but they're they're still trying to push the. I think what they're more worried at the moment is they have this kind of um, vaccine resistance of, of people. People aren't really jumping up to get their vaccines. They're a bit like, nah, I might wait till I get the Pfizer one, or you know, it's 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 not really. We don't really need it because we're safe. And um, I think that's kind of one of their their biggest worries that they do know that you know that the road out of it is through vaccination, but there is that hesitancy to. Yeah. To get in, roll up your sleeve. But they're starting to do a lot of advertising campaigns now. So, you know, here it's called roll up for WA. So, you know, roll up your sleeve and get your jab and do it for your Western Australians and this kind of thing. Because, they, you know, they, they hear a little bit about the blood clot and it gets blown out of proportion and people, you know, and, and they're just kind of waiting to get more options. And the more you wait, the longer you're going to take for yeah. you know, the herd immunity kind of thing. So it's just, um, you know, I... I can get mine now uh, in the next couple of weeks, so I'm gonna book my one in, and as soon as I can, I'll be getting. I'd be happy to get you to jab me with anything you got. I'll take it. Yeah, that's that's a very typically Irish attitude. They'd be actually, you know, what 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 vaccine am I getting? Who cares? Just stick it in, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just get it into us. Yeah. Well, you got back then, and like there was more change. Did what am I hearing? Did you have to move house? <laughs> And <laughs> um, we, we, because I suppose it's a double-edged sword in some ways, because Western Australia has done so well um, with the whole COVID thing, and uh, where our economy is growing as opposed to the rest of the world, which is imploding, um, we are attracting a lot of people from within Australia to move to Western Australia. So the rents have gone up and it's getting harder. Um, and there was a, a moratorium on for a year that you couldn't evict your tenants and always carry on with COVID, which ended um, at the end of March or April. So we got notice on it from our landlords that they were putting the rent up from $480 a week to $750 a week. And uh, I what? said to my husband, that's a bit of a... <laughs> I said, I don't think we should uh, cough up that for, for the house we were in. It was Debbie, what's that in euros? Fact, I don't know, about 300 a week to Crikey. 500 a week, kind of a jump. Right. Wow. Yeah, so it was, it was a good... It was a, it was a $270 a week um, increase. So I, I just said to, to the hobby, that's mad money. And, um, you know, if, if you the opportunity, you throw that off your own mortgage more than stick it into someone else's. So um, we said that we'd move. But, of course, it got really, really hard to to find a place. So he was going to home opens and stuff, and sure there, there was, it was packed and it was busy. So he, um, he was, ironically enough, one of the neighbours in the old estate that we were living in, they were lovely and they're working for a radio station up here called 6PR and they rang him one day to have a chat about the rental crisis and he was just telling them a little bit you know the rent jumped up and, and a Dublin fella rang in and said I have a house for you <laughs> so we're actually living in a Dublin fella's house now so we're uh, you know we're, we're looking after each other the paddies are looking after each other over here so we're, we're, we're in, a, in, 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 in a bigger house anyway so and, and for $200 cheaper a week than we we're going to be paid if we stay where we were so it worked out in the end but I moved into a place full of boxes so it was a case of, right, where are the kids' uniforms? <laughs> so, because um, obviously they're in the middle of the school year here. So, uh, yeah, just trying to find pencil cases and, and school hats and all this carry on. Was, it was interesting for the first few days. So, uh, I just about know where everything is now. So, um, most of things. Some, some adventure. Take me back. Yeah. Before we finish, Debbie, I suppose, and talk a little bit about your dad. You got a few weeks with him when you came back. I did and I was telling him that I was going to come back and he because he was sick and I said look we'll come back and spend some time to you because you'd never 
he never talked about the elephant in the room that he had, you know, that it, that the cancer was terminal and all that. But you wouldn't really mention that kind of thing. So he um, he was just like, oh God, that's mad. Don't don't be trying. That's bad, me. And don't don't come back. That's that's ridiculous. Don't be doing that to yourself. And I was like, yeah, look, we come back and we'll we'll cheer you up by seeing us. I said you're, you're not feeling too good, so I we'll bring the kids back and we'll cheer you up. And um, so you know, he was delighted then, and it, when he was um, they they said to him in the hospital that you you'd have to go to. Um, Mary Mountain, I think he, he he that was the last thing he wanted to hear. So we were lucky that my sister was actually able to take him down to her house. You know, it, it was brilliant to be able to see him. And, and I suppose the, the old school way, just, you know, I said to him, how are you? I'm grand, never better, not a bother. <laughs> like, you know, the poor fellow, like, he was in an awful way. But even the nurses that came every day, he, they said, geez, he's a great old patient. He never complains, you know, but... Typical Irish fella, like wouldn't complain, no, you know, until the until the bitter end kind of thing. Like so, um, it was you know, it was good to it was good to see him in good spirits, even facing all that. You know, it was you know, I'll, I'll be glad I did. Yeah, it was worth the trick. Absolutely, and the kids as well. Um, they were able to process it that bit better. Um, I think because when you're away, I have friends on, and they said that when the when the grandparents died, because we were lucky enough that the kids had a decent relationship with them, because we'd come back. At Christmas, um, whenever we could, and we'd spend, I'd stay on a little few weeks extra because their kids' summer holidays are January, basically. So I'd stay on for the month of January. Mm. But they've gone through that with, yeah. with me, and we're to process it, and they'll say, "Oh God, Gang Gang Joe would have loved this, and he'd have loved that," or yeah. you know, if you, to be able to talk about them, you know yeah. what I mean, that I wouldn't have to kind of keep those taboo subject not to upset them because they weren't, you know, that kind of way. So yeah. we, it's. You touched on something there, Debbie, and I guess before we leave you, it's it's worth thinking about it. Like, we've been looking at Australia and the wonderful job that's been done out there. Yeah, they'll crack down hard and they'll crack down in a couple of hours, but in general, the wonderful job they've done in keeping the people safe. But what we sometimes might forget is the other side of it, is, like, thousands of people like yourself who haven't been able to get home, haven't seen anybody for a long, long time, and won't for a long, long time to come. Yeah, yeah. No, I have two friends here now. Uh, one has lost her mum and one has lost her dad in the last couple of months. You know, like that, I'm 43, so we're roughly the same age. And, and that's kind of the age that, they, I suppose, you start going through these things. And um, they've had to do, you know, basically Zoom uh, funerals, stuff like that, where I I can't imagine, you know, having to do that. I just think that there must be a massive hole in, in their heart. They won't get that. They won't get the, the bit of closure, the, the community sense that you get. And they don't get any of that. They, they just get, a, you know, an hour on a screen and, and that's it all over. You know, and I just think, God, that, and there's thousands of them obviously in that situation. And it just, it's heartbreaking. And a lot of them, you know, obviously people are still, you know, people still go through their life things. People still get cancer. People still get sick. And there's a lot of these things that are even celebrations, you know, that they would have absolutely loved to come back and, there's a lot of people I think now after after you know it's been over 12 months and there's a lot of weariness I think at the start okay we understand we'll batten down the hatches we'll all get into it we'll all you know push the wheel together but at, at this stage it's just you know it's really you know the heartstrings have been pulled before but I think they're starting to break at this stage it's just so hard for them you know I, 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 I'm so grateful that I did get my opportunity but I, my heart it's, it's so hard for the others I feel so sorry for them and I can't see it ending anytime soon because, again, you know, with the, with the variants that I keep breaking out and, and how cautious people are. And yeah, Set, certainly chatting to you gives us some bit of, of insight into what it is like at the other side of the world, literally. Deb, good luck settling back. Our condolences on, on the loss of your dad. And take care out there. 
thanks for giving me a voice I suppose uh, you know I, I speak obviously from just my own personal um, uh, experience of it all but I know as much as we appreciative of the life we have here we're always, always, always connected to home Debbie good to speak with you take care and thanks thanks many PJ that's Debbie Cashman speaking with me uh, just there earlier this week they're back now settled in Australia having come home uh, for her dad who died and um, and they're back there now but it's it's a great perspective on just what life is like in Australia and you look at it and you know they have done this so well in terms of keeping case numbers down but then the other side of it is that if you're out there you're kind of stuck there for the foreseeable and you can't get home for something like a funeral or, or a major family event and it all bears thinking about Can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Cork loves the arts. We do too. That's why we bring you the Arts House. Every Sunday on Cork's 96FM. Hi, it's Elmery. Each week we bring you the latest news from our vibrant and creative communities all around Cork. Whether it's tips for the best live gigs online, new initiatives from Cork's writers and musicians, join Elmery Mall and Connor Tallon as we work to support and keep the arts alive in Cork. The Arts House. Sunday mornings 8 to 10. With Griffin's Potatoes Cork. Fresh flowery and full of taste it's at the root of what we do on Quartz 96 FM the lines are live and we're ready to talk can we just talk Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Yeah, that Netflix documentary about Sophie Tosca and Duplantier looks great. Looks really, really good. But I tell you, I can't stress enough how wonderful the other one is. The Sky Crime one, which drops... Sunday, this coming Sunday, five episodes put together by the legendary Jim Sheridan called Death at the Cottage. And as I mentioned yesterday, I managed to get my hands, uh, thanks to the production company, on two preview episodes, episodes one and two, and I literally cannot wait to see the next three. It's, It's off the scale. It's so, so good. So, so good. Lots of good stuff coming on, Sophie. And of course, 25 years on this Christmas, uh, since she was so brutally murdered. 1850-715-996. Back to that and loads more. But I do need to talk to Jamie Hickey because Jamie is getting ready for a wedding and he's dealing with the excitement of getting his first book published. His very first book published. Jamie, what age are you? Good morning. Hello. my um, I'm nine. Nine. And you've written a book called The Big Rescue. Uh-huh. Tell me about it. It's about uh, three superheroes called um, Olive, Metro and Rio. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're um, trying... Um, and then there's um, um, the junk gang that are trying to take over... Um, the Cork International Hotel. Oh, I see, because that's where your mum works, isn't that right? Yeah. So the, they take, they try to take over the hotel, and I suppose they don't, they don't succeed, do no. they? No. No. 
No, because the, so super, the superheroes they, sorted um, all out, yeah? So they call the Trigon Hotel headquarters to right. help them from, um, like, to get help from Mr. Broccoli, Mrs. Apple, and Mr. Strawberry. Okay. Where did the idea come from, Jamie? Um, so one Sunday evening, um, um, my mom said, um, Jamie, um, I, in my work asks um, me to make a book. Can you help me? Right. right. And I said, yeah. Okay, good. And was it exciting to sit down and figure out a story in your head and write it down for a book? Was it exciting? Yeah. And now you have the book in your hand and you are an author. You are a published author. How does that feel, young man? Uh, it feels good. Yeah. Would you like to do some more writing, maybe? Uh, maybe a few more books. I don't know, really. Maybe a few more books. Good. Plans. Plans. Do you have, do you have a favourite writer? Uh, yeah. Good. Who's your favourite writer? Dave Pokey. Dave? The creator of Dogman. Well, tell me a bit about him. He creates these novels called Dogman, and it's like um, uh, where there's um, uh, there was uh, a normal guy, and then they and a normal dog, and then they got in an explosion, and then um, they got rushed to hospital, and then one of the nurses said. Um, we should sew the dog's head onto the man's body and then that's how he's called Dog Man. Okay, okay, that sounds like a strange story. So when you write more books, I have a friend, you know, who, who works in Waterstones, a man called John. I wonder, would you, would you one day be doing a book signing inside Waterstones, do you think? Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. You never, <laughs> you never know. Congratulations, Jamie on your first book, The Big Rescue. And thank you for being with me today. It's always good to talk to writers and and great people like that. So thank you very much. That's Jamie Hickey, uh, Cork's newest young author, uh, nine years of age. It's it's down to the Cork International Hotel. They have a search ongoing. Thanks, Jamie, for and enjoy the wedding that's coming up with it tomorrow for Ireland's next children's author. And his mom has been working in the hotel for the last... 14 years or so. So the book is just out now called The Big Rescue. 1850 I'd say John Breen be holding a table in Waterstones for the next couple of years. This lad is definitely going places. Come here, I got this message this morning and I wanted to get a chance to read it because we talk so much about uh, illegal littering or illegal dumping and, and generally vandalism of public property. I tweeted a picture this morning, before I get to this, I tweeted a picture this morning of a Christmas tree on Maryborough Hill between Lizardell and Broaddale on the opposite side of the road on the green area there by the wall of the golf club. Someone drove up there in the last couple of days and dropped a rotting, dried up Christmas tree on the grass verge. Like, a, it's flipping June and someone is only throwing out their Christmas tree now. Now, look, we've all done that. We've all wondered in Mayor, what's that old orange pile down the end of the... Oh, that's the Christmas... But we haven't all put it into the car and horsed it out on the side of the road 
at Maryborough Hill. Are there any rules at all? We've got sofa, sofas in Ballinhasic and Christmas trees in Maryborough Hill. And there were cookers in Moneygorney recently. There was a cooker and a fridge dumped inside the roadway, let's say, recently last year. Then we got this from someone in Cove who'd rather not give her name, and that's fine. I just wanted to voice my concern about something I saw online, which was shocking. The ladies' public toilets in Cove on the prom were so badly vandalised, they practically pulled the toilet off the wall and they broke it in half. I may be wrong, but I think it happened early in the morning, around half seven. And someone might correct me if that's wrong. Two questions. What kind of women or girls, I assume they were female, as it was the ladies' toilets, would carry out this kind of vandalism? Utterly destroying a toilet at that time of the day. And if there were young girls or young women, what kind of a state must they be in to do something like that? And, and why didn't their parents know where they were or how drunk or drugged up they were? I'm assuming all this, but that would, that's what adds up for me. Half seven in the morning, what else would you be? There, and also, surely there's some CCTV along the prom to catch whoever was responsible. I think whoever carried out this should be held accountable for their actions. Many thanks from Cove. 1850-715-996. Just taking a bit more read of that World Health Organization report because I have got comments coming in, which I'll get to in the fullness. Uh, the World Health Organization publishes this thing quite frequently. It's a global alcohol action plan. And it's worried about the level of drinking around the world. That's its job, and to advise on drinking. And women were involved in compiling and writing this report that's out this morning. But it suggests that women of childbearing age should not be allowed to drink alcohol, should in fact be banned from drinking alcohol. Maybe I'm misreading it, maybe I'm misquoting it, but what you're seeing from the world is that they should not be allowed to drink alcohol. Women of child bearing age. It calls on countries to take awareness of alcohol-related harm and its harmful use. It also suggests a new World No Alcohol Day or World No Alcohol Week where we would take a look at things like fetal alcohol syndrome uh, syndrome in children. Yeah, it's, it's controversial and as I said, we will discuss it more. I have comments on it which I'll get to later. 1850-715-996. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With Dairymaid Premium Spread. 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork Cream. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Many, many articles have been written and I suppose books will be written uh, eventually about the impact of lockdown on elements and COVID in general on elements of our lives. One of them that you might not think would be a priority, especially if you're not in that market, is dating. Trying to date through the last 16 months would have had to be a nightmare for anybody in the dating bracket, male or female. But for some reason, research is telling us that it's been harder for females. Um, and it's been very disruptive to the dating life. And as we ease out of lockdown, and as we all get 
vaccinated and get back to some level of normality, people are wondering about how do they start dating again. Gian Sullivan uh, Belacci is a soulmate coach, a businesswoman in West Cork and a dating guide. Uh, Gian joins me. Good morning. Good morning. It's one of the things that you wouldn't have put as a priority for when we get out of this. But for some people, it's it's a real problem in that they've been 16 months effectively locked up and, and tied down. And now they want to get back into the dating scene. What are the problems they face? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, a lot of people really, you know, the, the lockdown and being alone really made them see how hard it life is without a partner. And so some of the things that they're facing has just been being kind of isolated and out of practice. You know, (laughs) dating is not for the weak of heart. You know, you have to really put yourself out there and people have just been kind of in a COVID cocoon and a lot of women, especially have been watching a lot of romantic comedies and maybe are dating their sweatpants (laughs) and eating a lot of crisps and, you know, the average person gained almost uh, a kilo a month during COVID. So they don't yeah. feel so great about themselves. The, the COVID stone is a real thing. It definitely is. No matter how hard you tried not to put it on, it's there. It absolutely is. And my message is to let people know, men and women, that it really isn't about, you know, having too much weight. It's really about you know, loving yourself and accepting yourself as you are and putting yourself out there with confidence. So confidence is the real issue. Mm. Mm. A lot of people, I think, Jen, are reluctant to speak about this kind of thing because they think, God, you know, am I I attention-seeking? Am I making it all about me? But I'm getting lonely and I don't want to get left on the shelf. And the last 16 months has been the hardest ever because I am lonely at the end of it. But that's the worst part. I don't know where to go now. Exactly. And you touched upon something so important that's come up ever since I moved to Ireland a couple of years ago. And it's, it's all about the difference between confidence and arrogance. I'm getting a lot of people who confuse the two. Mm. And, you know, dating takes confidence. Being attractive to someone else takes confidence. But unfortunately, a lot of people think, oh, if I put myself out there with confidence, I'm going to look like I'm tooting my own horn. I'm going to look like I'm full of myself or arrogant. And it's really not the same thing. It just shows that you have self-respect and love for yourself where you own your needs, you own your your boundaries and your deal breakers. Mm. It's not about bragging about yourself. You've touched on something that, and I may be wrong here, but I do think it's uniquely Irish. <laughs> that, that the young person, men or women, young men or young women, who are and I think the the twenty somethings of today are far more outgoing and far more articulate than the twenty somethings of, of a number of years ago. But they're still held back by this idea that if you get out there and say, "Here I am, world, and I am who I am, and I like who I am," that somehow or other people will say, "Oh, look at them now; they're full of themselves," and try to take them down a peg or two. And they have that fear in them. Yes. And it also holds back uh, business people as well. Yeah. You know, they they don't want to put themselves out there. 
because they're afraid of that very same thing. And I just uh, did a webinar on Network Ireland where I was explaining to women, I totally get that, but it's time to let that fear go because it's keeping you from being visible to your ideal clients, your ideal customers. And it's the same with dating. The people who would really love the authentic you are not going to see you if you're kind of hiding. Yeah, yeah. Play yourself down. Don't play yourself up. In actual fact, the opposite is the case. Play yourself up and say, here I am. Yeah, and it's just about self-respect. It's not about bragging and, you know, being arrogant. It's just about showing that you have self-esteem. You've got a webinar coming up, I think, on the 6th of July about all of this. I do. I have a, a webinar that's free. It's called Love After Lockdown, Boost Your Dating Confidence and Attract Your Partner. And I'm teaming up with a couple of uh, coach friends who are fabulous. One is the style coach, Sharon Huggard, mm-hmm. and a nutrition and fitness coach, Claire O'Sullivan. And we're just going to help people, you know, break up with their rom-coms and <laughs> break up with their sweatpants <laughs> and leave the crisp behind and start getting in touch with uh, how you can feel better in your body, how you can feel better emotionally, mm. um, and how you can really tap into your authentic style so you can feel more confident putting yourself out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where can people find this? They can just go to my website, which is mysoulmatecoach.com. Okay. Okay, just a, a question there on the, the whole COVID stone. I know we might, we might joke about it a bit, but it, it is a reality. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And it's easy to be, to be glib about it, I guess. For some people, we'll hide behind the front door because they put it on and they're afraid people will see it. I'm so glad you asked this because... I didn't mention earlier that when I attracted my soulmate, I was um, very, very Rubenesque. <laughs> I was very large. And I, though, had worked on feeling really good about myself. And I was doing better online than a lot of my thinner friends. And I was, you know, middle aged and I had the dreaded strong personality <laughs> that they tell women not to have. Um, but I did really well. And my husband really loved me that way. He was really attracted to me and that I wasn't putting myself down, that I wasn't hiding, that I 
put myself out there with courage and confidence. Is it true to say, Jan, that if you are comfortable in your own skin and you project that comfort, people will warm to you anyway? That's absolutely true. I have seen that in many, many clients and I've seen it in my own life. Which brings the next question. Where do I learn that comfort? I think, you know, this webinar is a really good place to start. Um, But it's all about finding ways to get in touch with what you're uncomfortable about. If it's your weight, you might see, uh, you know, a fitness coach or you might, you know, join a gym or just get some help in losing the pounds. But I just want to caution people not to think, I can't put myself out there until I'm thinner or I have to reach a certain weight because the people who are really meant for you, they really aren't going to be looking at you and going, oh, she or he needs to lose a certain amount of weight and then I'll be interested. They're not going to feel that way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's an old saying that the people who matter won't mind. The people who mind don't matter. Exactly. And if they need help with their mindset, you know, a coach like me or maybe therapy or even some friends who really can help reflect back at you how how wonderful you really are and what a caring person and value you have. And then a a style coach like Sharon or maybe, you know, a friend can help you, you know, put clothes on that really reflect who you are deep inside to help instead of just fading into the background like a wallflower. It's not about labels. It's just about expressing your authentic style and figuring out what that is. So people can really see you and appreciate you. Here's an interesting question that has come in. I think there was a loneliness, says this caller, pervading society ever before COVID, but people were just about managing to keep their head above water. And then lockdown happened and it took everything away from them. Can you tackle the root cause of the loneliness? Like what is causing so many people to feel so lonely right now? I think it's the isolation. It's the lack of human contact. And I was really trying throughout all of lockdown. I was really putting myself out there and letting singletons know that the, you know, the lockdown didn't mean they had to give up dating Um, because I actually think that it pushed more people into online dating. And some people are really afraid of that. You know, they're very nervous about it, but more people are doing that nowadays and it's really important i think to you know put yourself out there when people cut themselves off from online dating then they cut off all of their options and they weren't able to see family and friends and we need that human connection in yeah, order to yeah. feel good this caller was saying that we don't really have ways now other than online of talking to people and, and we have to be careful. And you're also watching who is this person that's online with you, because until someone is sitting opposite you face to face, you can't make a, a proper, uh, you know, a, a, a proper sort of uh, impression or form a proper impression of, of who they are. Just again, for people who want to take your webinar, is it is there a charge? No, it's free. And it's at mysoulmatecoach.com. If you click on the events tab, you can register right there. Okay. All right. Good talking to you. That's uh, Gian Sullivan Bilacci, uh, the Soulmate Coach, based in West Cork. A lot of people feeling very off 
as they look to get back into the Dayton world. I'd hate, I would absolutely hate to be trying to get into that world right now. 30. This April, songwriter John Spillane and novelist David Mitchell met and spoke about music, folklore and mythology. These musings are interspersed with performances by John of his new songs and a runs-on-demand video stream from everymancork.com. Access All Areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a rescheduled show coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access All Areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96. There's a new report now, it's a survey of the food that young people are eating, known as the National Teenage Food Survey. The dietary habits of teenagers aged 13 to 18 were studied in all the secondary schools and put into this new national survey. And among the things it found were that intake of fruit and vegetables are too low, intakes of sugar and salt and saturated fat are effectively too higher. There's not enough fibre in teenagers' diet. They're not taking enough calcium, vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin A, vitamin B6 or iron. And there's less milk being drank, less potatoes being eaten. And they're, they're basically getting it all wrong. Dr. Jeanette Walton is a lecturer in the Department of Biological Sciences at MTU. Jeanette, good morning to you. Morning, and thank you for having me this morning. Delighted. They're getting it wrong, or are we letting them get it wrong? I suppose we could look at it either way, to a certain extent. One of the things that we did ask was um, what their barriers were to healthy eating. And their barriers did include their own likes and dislikes, but also convenience and food availability. So I think we probably need to look at that from their point of view as well, and maybe understand what you know? What they mean in terms of their likes and dislikes, and convenience and food availability. Well, I would imagine for most teenagers, the most immediate access to food is what's in their own larder and their own fridge at home. A- absolutely, and we did see that twenty percent of their calories are actually consumed from food that is prepared or eaten within the home. So that wouldn't include takeaways and stuff that might be brought into the home, but food that is bought from the shops and brought into the home. So that's a significant amount of calories, sort of fifth of their calories, that will be consumed within the house. So yes, absolutely. What are the concerns at the level of obesity now? I mean, among teenagers, it's higher than it was, say, five years ago. So our comparisons would have been to 15 years ago. And yes, we are seeing an increase. And I suppose what's more disturbing is that when we look at the adults, we see um, a large increase at, at the younger adult age, so your 18 to 35-year-olds. So I think that's where we'll be starting to get worried. You know, we're seeing the smaller, less of an increase maybe in the teenagers. But what we did see in our recent children's survey was that there's a stabilisation at that age. 
and we saw a stabilisation at the very young age. So it's looking like some of the health promotion activities or you know, agenda and obesity policy that's going on is working at the younger age groups. Mm. Um, but I think this age group seems to be a bit missed. We have a problem with vitamin D. In that, no, we have a problem nationally in this country, and the research yeah. is now there to show we have a problem nationally with vitamin D, and it's yeah. come very much to the fore as we now realise vitamin D can be very good for helping your body to fight uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, but also, the WHO this morning is very worried about young people drinking, and that doesn't help their nutrition either. And uh, no, um, we didn't actually ask about alcohol habits in this survey because of their age group being yeah. 13 to 17. We, we avoided asking. Now, some of them did uh, decide to put it in their food diaries. So we were aware of some <laughs> alcohol intake, but certainly that's not the focus or purpose of our survey. So we wouldn't be commenting on alcohol intake. OK, OK, appreciate that. The, the, the vitamins, though, the sources of vitamins. Yeah, so the vitamin story is, is to me was really interesting and it's probably... Um, the one point that I would take out of all the findings that we have, we've only really, <clears throat> findings only came out last week, so we're really just trying to digest them at the moment. But the key thing here, that the first thing that I really took from it was the low calcium and vitamin D levels. Yeah. And you only have one chance to build your peak bone mass, and that's between the age of nine and so your early 20s. And at that stage, you can't build anymore. So that's it. You know, it's built to its capacity. Yes. And then you start losing it after that. And I think that's a message that's lost. And it's one that I sing a lot in college to all the students that will listen. But it's it's that age group that if you don't get it at that time, you can't get it again. That's so. very interesting, Dr. Walton, that the you're saying that the reserves of calcium and good bone structure and good tooth structure and things that, that come from good sources of calcium, that your ability to do that, to make those things from good calcium, that that stops in your teens. Is that right? Yeah, um, well, you're early 20s, so I suppose up to maybe your mid-20s, um, you can build your peak bone mass. So even uh, only 1% of your calcium is elsewhere in your body. 99% of it is stored either in the bones or, as you said, in the teeth. Right. And you get one opportunity to build that to the best ability you can. And then after that, you start losing it as time goes on. And is there a danger, and maybe I'm asking you to speculate, tell me if I am, is there a danger maybe that if you don't get the proper amount of milk, other sources of calcium, cheese, potato, whatever, the, wherever you get your calcium. If you don't get sufficient calcium in your teens and your early 20s to build the reserves of bone that you need, is there a danger of brittle bone disease or bone ailments in later life? Um, absolutely, in terms of osteoporosis, because osteoporosis is due to the loss of bone in later life, which will happen anyway. And again, I suppose you can only lose what you have. So if you've less to lose, you're going to lose, you know, you're going to lose more. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And we have 300,000 people in Ireland with osteoporosis. And again, it's known as the silent disease because you don't know about it generally right. until you have a, uh, until you have a fracture. Right. And the fracture can be very dehabilitating. Um, so, so, yeah, so, so for, patient, really for, for parents of teenagers who are out doing the food shop and, uh, uh, you know, what are good everyday sources of calcium? So for calcium, I suppose the, the key sources of calcium are dairy. So in terms of dairy, we'll be talking about milk. And it doesn't matter whether it's in terms of calcium, it doesn't matter whether it's whole milk, low fat or skim milk. They're all, you know, an equivalent amount of calcium in them. 
Um, so your yogurts and cheese again. Bread is quite a significant um, source of calcium because the flour that we use in plant bakeries, which is all actually currently imported from the UK, um, it's enriched with calcium. So the flour is enriched with calcium. So all of our flour is imported and that's enriched with calcium. So breads would have a, a fairly substantial contribution. And then you'd get bits and pieces then throughout the rest of the diet. Um, yeah. But typically, uh, milk and yogurt and cheese and breads would be your key contributors. Something has popped into my mind here. Um, so many teenagers are now experimenting with veganism, uh, yeah. our non-dairy lifestyle. Uh, would you be concerned about that? Okay, so we're not seeing at a population level, which is interesting, but not unusual. We've looked at the data across Europe, and even though there is quite a a hype about um, veganism at the moment, at population level, we don't see it. We have 98% meat eaters. But we are starting to see in certain population groups, and again, we might see this more in the 18 to 35-year-olds. We're serving adults again at the moment, and it's likely that we'll start seeing this again at the next age group, up your college age group. And so... Yes. Um, in terms of calcium, a number of the plant-based alternatives are calcium enriched, but some of them aren't. So it's very important for parents or teenagers that are looking at these alternatives to check if they are fortified with calcium. And it'll say it in the front of them. Generally, it'll say calcium enriched or with added calcium. Mm. But absolutely, 100%, if, um, if they don't have that added calcium, then I wouldn't be choosing those products. But the problem that we're seeing is that children have reduced their intake of milk overall. Yes. It isn't that they've moved it to plant-based milks, it's just they've reduced their um, consumption of they're milk. They're just not taking in the teenagers. Yeah. And so the other thing too, they're, they're eating lots of crisps and, and junk like that, but they're not eating a lot of bread. And, the, of course, that's another problem because it's the mantra now, ah, bread will make you fat. But you need some bread. There's a lot of confusion and a lot of influencers out there they're making a lot of statements that really aren't necessarily true. So I think it's really good to look back at the food-based dietary guidelines. So every country has a set of food-based dietary guidelines. In Ireland, we use the food pyramid. And I think for a lot of people, they just see it as too simplistic. And they just look at this and think, oh, that's easy. And then they just don't follow it. So I think I wouldn't be overly worried about our guidance. It's more that it, it's either a lack of awareness of it or a lack of compliance with it. But again, just look at a food pyramid if you were to follow the food pyramid for teenagers or adults um, in Ireland, you will get all of the nutrients that you need in the required amounts, except for vitamin D in winter. And again, there's a recommendation to have a vitamin D supplement from yeah. Halloween to St. Patrick's Day. Did, did, did I hear? Did I hear there in in, in your words uh, uh, a warning? Don't be taking too much influence from the influencers. <laughs> Well, we all saw Ronaldo during the week, did we? Did you see Ronaldo? <laughs> Remind me again about Ronaldo. <laughs> it was so, a positive influence actually during the week and quite nice as a, as a parent myself to see uh, before he did his interview after the Portugal match, he removed the two bottles of Coke and replaced one of them with a bottle of water and oh, said he wouldn't start his interview <laughs> until the Coke was removed. So that was a nice influence. In I house. missed that one. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Good um, for it's seeing a lot in social media at the moment and certainly it was a nice one to have in our house Good, I missed that one Alright, Jeanette, listen, thank you very much for your time this morning, really do appreciate it Dr Jeanette Walton is lecturer in the Department of Biological Sciences at MTU and MTU, one of the colleges which was part of this National Teen Food Service, so they need to be eating more dairy, more bread they get more vitamin D into them
more calcium into them. And that's something, if you've learned nothing this morning about teenage diets, if they don't get enough calcium into their system in the teens and early 20s, that's the only time in your life when you get the benefit in terms of bone, strong, healthy bone, strong, healthy teeth. That's built in your teens and early 20s. After that, it starts to fade away. So you only have what you build in your teens and early 20s. Really solid, solid nutritional advice. 1857-15996. Nearly forgot this. Corks 96 FM's Free Speaker Frenzy. With Blackpool fully opened up. It's great to be back. See blackpool.ie. You want it? I never felt this good. Right, we did the cute to call, and once again, you nearly broke the machines. We're headed for Cove. Cove, uh, Paula. Paula, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Pa- How are you? Good. Are you one of these people that says Megan or Mehigan? Megan. You say Megan. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. You're in uh, East Hill in Cove. What are you supposed to say to me? I would like to say to you, speaker, play 96 FM. Oh, man. Play Corks 96 FM. Try it again. Okay. Play Corks 96 FM. There you are. Because if you say play 96 FM, you get some crowd in Australia. You wonder who they are. So there you are. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you're our latest winner on Free Speaker Frenzy. Pauline, Pauline Megan in Eastgate in Cove. So we'll sort all that out. We'll all be tickety-boo. You'll have your speaker uh, quick and quickly. All right. Lovely. Congratulations. Our latest winner on Free Speaker Friendly. I'll give back to you there, Fergal. Our latest winner on Free Speaker Friendly on Cork's 96 FM with Blackpool fully opened up. Great to be back. See blackpool.ie and stay listening to Win only on Cork's 96 FM. Win is in for Simon this week. He'll have smart speakers and so will Lorraine later on. 1857-15996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural and made in Cork using West Cork cream. On Cork's 96FM. This year, the National Hospice Movement is opening a virtual Sunflower Remembrance Garden online. The garden will remain open for the month of June and you are asked to dedicate a sunflower in memory of a loved one to help raise funds for local hospice and specialist palliative home care services. For more, log on to togetherforhospice.ie forward slash sunflower days. If you have an event you would like mentioned, email corkdiary at 96fm.ie. The Cork Diary. With the new Explore Cork app. A Cork County Council initiative featuring over 850 places to see and things to do. On Cork's 96 FM. Watch a video this morning of the cutest little house. A cutest little tiny house. Eco-friendly and all those things. And you pull it around on wheels. Fabulous joke. And it is being raffled. And the proceeds of the raffle, or part of them at least, will go to the Cork Penny Dinners and Simon uh, Cork Simon, Kathleen Weirden, tell us more. Good morning to you. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, it's um, it is the most beautiful of tiny houses, and we had it built in Northumberland because I come from Cork and I've been desperate to come home for such a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when you're living in the UK and you're trying to see if you can buy here, it was like an impossibility. So we decided. Let's go down the eco house route, mm. you know. Anyway, um, it was built in Northumberland. It was brought 
here from Northumberland over to Belfast and driven all the way down to Cork. Because mm-hmm. you can literally tie it onto the back of a lorry, can't you? Well, you can tie it onto the back of a two-litre engine. Really? And it will move it. Uh, considering its size, it's quite surprising, actually. Mm. And considering where we have it, it's quite surprising because it's 25 feet long, 8 feet wide, and um, about 40 and a half feet high. Mm. And it's got everything, it's got a kitchen, it's got bedrooms, it's got stairs inside, windows, batteries, solar panels, it's wonderful. It's a fantastic thing. It wasn't a cheap build by any stretch of the imagination. Um, Because, you know, we often start out thinking we're going to build this for, you know, 30, 40 grand. Mm. And actually, as you add on the eco-credentials, it gets a little bit more interesting. So what's it worth? It, it was built for 65,000 sterling. Right. So it's worth about 75,000 euro. And we're not trying to make a profit on it because we've capped it right. at, at 9,000 tickets. So, yeah. so you're selling tickets for it now. Yeah. And then if you have 9,000 tickets, 11 euro per ticket, or you obviously in the UK you're doing 10 yeah, pounds sterling. 10 yeah, 10 pounds. 10 yeah. pounds sterling. And then that obviously, the, the winner will, will win the house. But then yeah. the a portion of the proceeds are going to go to the Penny Dinners. It is, yeah. Penny Dinners and Cork Simon. They're kind of close to my heart because they're really kind of... I have a real thing about homelessness anyway because I think it's absolutely crazy that, you know, every citizen should have a home, you know. Um, but, you know, the Simon Dinners in particular... Uh, sorry, the Cork Penny Dinners, they were around when I was a kid and... Yeah coming back to Cork and seeing they're still thriving, they still have so much... They're busier than they ever were when either of us were kids, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I suppose, unfortunately, they're busier than they ever were. But um, it's always been great to know that there was such a good heart in the city that this was one of the first to come out and say, you know, there are people on the streets. Well, if people want to find out more about the raffle, and I have to go for no reason other than time, Kathleen, they can go to raffle dot com and they'll find out there about the tiny house raffle or they can email tinyhouseraffle at gmail dot com the lines are live and we're ready to talk can we just talk Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Getting a lot of reaction on our social to this WHO recommendation in their new report, which initially people thought was being you know, overhyped or misquoted or twisted around by the media. That's not the case at all. I'll get back to it, though, because we have a good response to it and I'll be reading out some of your comments. 1850-715-996. But first of all... Oh, by the way, can I just tell you, uh, just before we move on, this Sunday uh, is Father's Day, of course, and as I referred to him, uh, the Great One... Uh, Dario Callaghan has uh, taken a week off of Oldish and Irish and he has asked me uh, to take over for the week. It's always fun. I get to do this on a very rare occasion when Derry takes a break, but I'm so looking forward to once again sitting down to bang out the funky tunes from 10 till 2 on Sunday for Oldish and Irish and it being Father's Day and all that. So if you would like to get a request in for somebody or a mention for somebody, on Sunday, the 20th of June, between 10 and 2, I have my own 
address here at 96FM. I don't give it out very often, but it's my own work email address, as they say, pj at 96fm.ie, pj at 96fm.ie. I was inundated with stuff yesterday, and what I'll do is I'll take them and I'll print them and I'll read as many of them as I can out on Sunday between 10 and 2 when I'm sitting in for the great one himself, Dario Callaghan, on the Oldest in Irish programme on Cork's 96FM. So if you want to get a mention for someone on Sunday... Uh, PJ at 96fm.ie How's this one for you? Boris Johnson was asked if he'd heard the latest political jokes. Heard them, he said. I've appointed most of them. (laughs) Or, it was so cold the other day, Boris Johnson was seen with his hands in his own pockets. (laughs) Those jokes can only come from one man, and he's a man who's written more than 30 joke books, and I've read quite a number of them, and he is the retired professor of mathematics, Des McHale. Des, good morning to you. Morning, it's the way you tell them, I think. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> is. I remember you presenting comedy shows on radio with recordings of Hoffnung and those people, and 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 that's a while ago now. And then writing books back like in the nineteen seventies, yeah, like Carryman jokes and and all of that, and you have a library of humour at UCC. What though? What possessed you to write a Boris Johnson joke book? Well, I think I think he's asking for it. About 20 years ago, Private Eye magazine in Britain um, had a spoof article on, and it said, Boris Johnson, the new Prime Minister. And it was considered a great joke at the time. My God, can you imagine something like that ever happening? Well, now it's happened. Boris has actually become Prime Minister. And if you think about it, it's one of the most sensational things that ever happened. A guy like him who, you know, was regarded as a buffoon and a sort of, you know, not taken seriously at all, to be actually running one of the biggest democracies in the world, it's quite clear. So I think politicians like to be joked about. I think Boris has good sense of humour himself. You may have seen him on television. Um, if, if you're not being joked about and you're not being talked about, nobody's taking you seriously. And, you know, just to be serious for a moment, there are countries in the world where you cannot joke about the leaders or you get put in jail or maybe have your head cut off. I don't see many Putin joke books <laughs> on, on, on the stall. So it's a freedom we've got to joke about our politicians and our leaders, and I think we should use it. And God knows we're living in very depressing times with, with, with COVID and Brexit and everything else. We need something to laugh about. And Boris is the ideal target, in my opinion. Unfortunately, he is with, you know, the dress sense, the dress sense wouldn't be the best. No, it wouldn't. The, the, hair, the hair needs military intervention. At least we know he's not wearing a wig, because nobody <laughs> will wear a wig that time. <laughs> so, you know, and look, if it's, and in this, this changed world, Des, now, you know, my, the fact that I'm poking fun at his appearance We'll already have people outraged that I shouldn't be doing that. But but let's let's just do the old style. Well, who's outraged? I mean, I think it's a few journalists trying to fill columns by saying people are outraged at these jokes. Most people you meet make jokes. They don't take jokes. They're jokes. They're not meant to be taken seriously. They're a bit of fun. It's a bit of lighthearted stuff. I think we've really got to start to look at ourselves and take all this political correctness off the agenda. It's absolutely crazy. People have jokes since the beginning of time about everybody and everything. And if you're in a position, uh, you know, in a high position in society, you've got to be able to take your... I bet people joke about you. I'll bet they do. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> There are websites devoted to it. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and if I can't take it, then I shouldn't be in the job. 
Well, it's nice to be it's nice to be noted. But I mean, you can take aspects of Boris's personal life. I mean, he's on his on his third marriage now, and he's he's done a great trick by getting the Catholic Church to to marry him in Westminster Abbey on his third marriage. I mean, that's a pretty good trick. But um, a beautiful blonde lady came to him and de- demanded retribution because she said he was the father of her triplets. He said, "Triplets, impossible! I demand a recount." <laughs> <laughs> And all these come from your devilish brain, which is doing comedy now for how long, Des? Oh, I suppose about 50 years, really, you know. I mean, I started off when I was a kid. I, I used to have notebooks and write down every joke that I heard, and then I wanted to write joke books and do radio programs and everything else. And it's great fun. It's a great outlet because I'm a mathematician, and mathematics is a very serious business. So you need some bit of light relief in your life. And uh, I love to laugh, and I love hearing other people laugh. And mm. I think we should laugh an awful lot more. Yeah, yeah. As you know, we have uh, we have our resident in-house stand-up comic uh, Ross Brown uh, on the breakfast show. Ross, Ross would always talk about collecting jokes. That since he was old enough to remember them, he's collecting jokes. But also, you adapt them. The skill yeah. really is in taking a joke and adapting it for the purposes that you've got, and twisting it and varying it in in in, in some sort of way. No. The, the original, actually, this wasn't a joke, but originally Boris Johnson thought that Brexit was a vote to see if Britain would leave the Eurovision Song Contest or not. <laughs> no, I, I, I think there's some element of truth in that. He didn't know what the hell was going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of fun to be poked at Brexit. And, of course, Boris is, again, getting back to the whole buffoon thing. He has this image about him of being, he's like the, the poster boy for Brexit. What have you done? That's right. But I don't know, the jury is out on that. Is he a very clever man pretending to be an idiot? Or is he an idiot pretending to be a very clever man? I don't think people are quite decided. He's a good actor. I mean, mm. he wouldn't know really what Boris actually doing. Saying. I mean, there was a lot of, of, of good rapport between himself and Donald Trump. And one joke was that he asked Donald Trump for uh, uh, information or, or advice on the Northern Ireland situation. And Trump advised him to build a wall around Northern Ireland. <laughs> 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 Have you have you a couple more before we go? This yeah. Um, well, at, at the moment, actually, I must admit uh, I, I'm I'm a double jabber because I've had both my uh, shots for, for for the COVID thing, and uh, there are very few COVID jokes about. By the way, I mean it, it, we we will be overcoming the problem when COVID jokes start to appear, but there are none yet. The only one I've heard was the fellow who's so mean he wouldn't even give you the COVID virus. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, Boris Johnson is thinking of nationalising crime because that's the only way it'll never pay. Oh, I like that. I like that one, yeah. yeah. I like that. A little, a little bit of political, a political jibe as well as the I mean, joke. I think that I, I actually like Boris Johnson. I mean, he's, he's, he's refreshing. You know, if you look at the leader of the Labour Party, Starmer, God, mm. he has no humour in him at all. He's sort of dead. I mean, you might agree or disagree with Boris, but at least he's lively, at least he's interesting. I mean, he's, 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 it's true. If you hear he's going to be on the news or he's done something or, or he's taking questions, you know, you turn on the television because you don't know what he might say, not maybe in a good or a bad way. Listen, Des, great to talk to you. Let me leave you with one. Political car sticker, Boris Johnson does the work of two men, Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> There's Mikhail. Thank you very much. Emeritus Professor of Maths at UCC and author of about 30 joke books and one of the biggest collectors of comedy in the whole country, uh, Des McHale. His latest book is called The Official Boris Johnson Joke Book and it's published by Heimdall. 18th, and yet straight away, Kevin says the best comedy is based on...
on truth. Oh yeah. 1850-715-996. Right, let's go through that WHO thing next. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread, 100% natural, and made in Cork using West Cork cream. Let me run through some of these facts that are in, in fact actually fake. <laughs> Humans only have five senses, apparently with more. Well, what are the others? Uh, I think sense, which is I read the tea leaves, girl, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, we only use 10% of our brains is actually false. Okay. Uh, apparently we use a lot more than that. Bats are blind is false. They use sonar, sonar yeah. of some sort, yeah. All desserts are hot. All deserts, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Casey and Ross in the morning with no DC cars Blackpool for Skoda in the city. A long-standing tradition in Cork. Open 24-7 at mildc.com. So let us go back to this. It's a story that broke sort of early this morning. And initially people said, ah, that's just the media twisting words from the WHO. Initially, it was the Daily Mail who, who broke it. And of course, people said, oh, that's just the Daily Mail. No, twist. no actually, no. Women of childbearing age should be prevented from drinking alcohol, says the World Health Organization. That's the headline. It comes out of their Global Alcohol Action Plan, which they've updated. It calls on countries to raise awareness of alcohol-related harm and its harmful use. It talks about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It talks about increased disease, poor mental health, violence, lost productivity, strained relationships. It talks about many things to do with the consumption of alcohol. Now, then we wonder, was that media twist? It isn't, because if you go to the actual report, which you can find, there's action area two of the WHO Global Alcohol Action Plan. And there's a sentence that reads... Appropriate attention should be given to prevention of the initiation of drinking among children and adolescents. The prevention of drinking among pregnant women and women of childbearing age. And the protection of people from pressures to drink. So prevention of drinking among pregnant women and women of childbearing age. So that is a very clear suggestion from the WHO that women of childbearing age should be prevented from drinking. Now, for as long as I can remember, and my twins are 24 in October, the minute that she got the positive pregnancy test, the Queen Bee didn't touch a drop until they were born. And that, I think, is a common practice among women. I, I, of all, all the women I know, all the women who are my friends, all the women to whom I'm related... The minute that they got a pregnancy test that was positive, they went off to drink and they didn't touch it until the children were born. That's been going on for years. The NHS in the UK, and I'm sure the HSE here as well, has been saying for years that if you want to get pregnant, so you might decide you want to be starting a family this year, you're looking to get pregnant this year, then you should stop drinking now. And that at the time when you're actually trying to have a child, you shouldn't be drinking. That's the identical advice from NHS in the UK and from the HSE here. 
The WHO is taking it one step further in this new report and effectively saying if you ever want to have children, you shouldn't be drinking. That's weedy and black and white. If you ever want to have children, you shouldn't be drinking. And it is also suggesting that society shouldn't allow you to drink, should prevent you from drinking, should discourage you actively not to drink if you ever intend to have a child. Kira says, so because I'm a fab, I shouldn't be allowed to drink. This is fab. I mean, I can't have kids anyway. So F this. The fact that the AFAB people of this country haven't burned it down already still surprises me on a near day, daily basis. For anyone who hasn't heard the term AFAB, it means assigned female at birth. It's a common parlance these days. Miguel, perfectly fine if it also includes no drinking for men during our period of fertility, which according to movies and TV is pretty much our entire lives. David says, you see, this is what I'm talking about. It starts with the public health alcohol bill and minimum unit pricing, and it ends up with this. Claire, sorry? What what now? So women should be prevented from drinking until we reach our bleeding menopause? Vicky, just when you thought you were done saying, I'm not a vessel. A lot of people making comparisons between this and The Handmaid's Tale. Minutes it broke this morning. Bessie Borgers, good thing I'm hitting the menopause then. Well, I need to show my ID to the booze police. This is like those patronising folic acid ads. As though I was nothing but permanently pre-pregnant from when I started menstruation. Hashtag everyday sexism. Yeah, and keep them out in the kitchen as well, says Eddie. Well, some people are just taking the mickey, but for other people, this is a very, very serious thing. Um, You know, look, some people might see it as funny. Other people are very put out by the fact that the WHO... They're the latest thinking is this. Captain Lachico says, no, 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 no. It'll destroy the Irishman's chance of ever reproducing. No sober woman will be caught dead with Benji the Irishman. Seriously, no. What next? No, no but that's where it is. So we've gone from the tradition of women who, the minute they recognize that they're pregnant, then they go off the drink. That's been happening for a very long time. I'm sure there are women listening to me right now who are pregnant and won't have a drink until the child is born. That's been going on forever. The NHS in the UK, and as I say, I haven't seen the same advice from the HSE, but the NHS says if you plan to get pregnant in the months to come, then you should not be drinking. The WHO is taking it one step further and suggesting that if at any time in your life You plan on having children. You shouldn't be drinking at all. The prevention is an interesting word. Do they mean, and we don't have anybody from the WHO here to defend themselves, but do they mean that we shouldn't allow women of childbearing age to drink? Do they honestly mean that we shouldn't sell drink to women of childbearing age? I don't know if they do. I don't know if they do mean that. But that's where we stand. Your thoughts. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With dairy-made premium spread. 100% natural. And made in Cork using West Cork cream. Cork's 96FM. Yeah, texter is asking, shouldn't that affect men as well? Um, doesn't drink affect the performance of sperm? It can. 
it can. And so men who are heavy drinkers or consistent drinkers might be told by their doctor, uh, if you want to be able to conceive yourself and your partner, then maybe you should both give up the booze for a while. That That's true. I've heard of that happening. And Kevin says, all I'd say is drinking is the new smoking. You'll be society's pariah in a decade or two. Chip, 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 chip away. And then someone will bring in some sort of ban. You see if they won't. You know what, Kevin? That's a view I've heard expressed many, many times. There's the other side of that discussion, too. And, you know, it is a simple fact that if alcohol was invented today and brought onto the market today, and I speak as a drinker. I speak as a fellow who loves my drink and on occasion has been known to have one too many or two even. If alcohol was invented today, do you really think they'd sell it to us? We wouldn't. We would be illegal. Alcohol, if it was invented today, would never get passed, never get released into society because of the damage it can do. 1850-715-996. Quick reminder... We can't go to festivals and we can't go to gigs and concerts just yet. Just yet. Tis coming, tis coming, tis coming. But until it does, we've done the next best thing for you here at Cork's 96FM. Our Back Garden Festival is running again on the Cork's 96FM app or at 96FM.ie. And once we did this last summer and there was people had parties and they used to ring us up and say, we have the Back Garden Festival playing in the back. It's brilliant. And it's back on again with the biggest hits from your favourite festival stars. And it's all done with Harvey Normal and J- Harvey Norman and JBL, your specialists in sound this summer. And it's on the app now or 96FM.ie. Now, you don't have permission to go to it until 12 o'clock, but it's there. 1850-715-996 I spoke a couple of times on this programme with the remarkably brave Una Ring who has told her story now many times about being stalked and there's a man doing time for stalking her and she has set up a website with another stalking victim, Eve McDowell they had webinars they have started a campaign assisted by people like the great Mary Crilly down at the Cork Sexual Violence Centre to get stalking set down in law as a specific crime in its own right separate from harassment. Now presently stalking is prosecuted in this country under what they call the Non-Fatal Offences Against the Person Act but it is not a separate crime in itself and that's what Una Ring and uh, Eve McDowell and many others want to see established because then it can be prosecuted separately rather than the rigmarole that goes into it these days. And a number of Cork County councillors have gotten on board with this campaign, among them uh, Finn Falls' Deirdre Kelly. Deirdre, good morning. Good morning, PJ. In the UK, they did notice it had an effect when they separated the two of them. Is there political will here in this country to, to, to do it, do you think? Well, I suppose, um, PJ, as part of the motion that I brought forward to the Council on the 5th of May, we um, wrote to the Minister um, requesting that that would um, be the case. 
and the response from the Minister's office was that they were working to ensure that we have appropriate national um, response that supports both the victims and holds the perpetrators to account. But um, from my perspective, I'm not sure how that can be achieved when there's no specific distinction between the two. Um, The UK legislation um, has a specific distinction um, on, on their Harassment Act and they have introduced a Section 2A and a Section 4A which which is specifically refers to stalking and defines stalking. And the definition would be what? Uh, well, in, uh, uh, first of all, that might, may I point out that in our in our um, uh, offences against the Person Act, there's no mention at all of of stalking. And I suppose the thing is, uh, in terms of what we have now, is harassment is unwanted behaviour from someone else that would make one feel distressed, humiliated, or threatened. But stalking is is, is somewhat more intense and sinister. And stalking is a pattern of fixated, obsessive behaviour which is repeated. It's in, it's persistent and it's intrusive, PJ. And they they really a huge distinction there. Mm. Una Ring uh, was speaking on the Late Late Show Mm -hmm. uh, last month and she said something similar here in the opinion line when she was on. She said, when he was messaging me for six weeks, that was harassment. But when he crossed the line to come to my house, that was stalking. When someone comes to your house with a crowbar, rope, duct tape, that's not harassment. That's far, far beyond it. And it's insulting for it to be called harassment. Absolutely, and look, I suppose it, it was it was absolutely astounding to listen to Una articulating what she went through as a result of stalking. Nobody should be subjected to that. Um, however, in the event that this does occur, there needs to be a definitive path towards recourse. And like, I mean, can you just imagine the mental anguish associated with what this? It must be unimaginable. And Una articulated so it articulated it so well. And I think that we need to have that distinction now that that will assist both the victims and also the guardie, because their job needs to be made easier in relation to this as well. There needs to be a a defined distinction, PJ. Yeah, because uh, laws of evidence are such in this country that you have to specifically investigate things very, you know, in in a very specific way. And they they did have a a result in the UK because there was an immediate increase in prosecutions. Absolutely, yes, there was. And and aside from that, the Law Reform Commission here in Ireland has recommended that stalking would be defined as a separate crime to harassment, based on what um, the, the the results um, in in the UK. Mm. The latest from the government. Last time I was talking to to Una was that they felt that it's adequately covered. Yes. And yes. when, when government says that, it kind of means that they're resisting a change. Um, yes, that, that's um, that's the impression that I got also based on the, the uh, correspondence that we received. Why do you think that um, might be? I'm, I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure, PJ. But look, what they have said in their response is that um, that in lieu of, of introducing a distinct offence uh, of stalking, they have strengthened substantially the increase to a maximum penalty of harassment. But then. Uh, you see, they re- they increased it from seven to ten years. But the thing is, if they, it, based on that uh, and, and the distinction, what we would associate or what Una would associate with stalking, would would a person get a reduced sentence when there's no definitive, uh, de- defined um, uh, idea of what stalking is? Yeah, yeah. When you get into things like graduated scales, you get into interpretation. Yes, and, and the UK legislation specifically refers to that. They have um, um, following pro- they provisions 
and set out. So they have a section two, section two A, section four, section four A, and so on. And that's different scales, as you just mentioned there, as to as to the the um, the offence that has been perpetrated. And uh, I think that needs to be uh, introduced here in Ireland also, because you can't just have every um, um, you can't have everything under the same umbrella, as it were. Um, 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 PJ, there's different variations as to as to the crimes that have been perpetrated against any victim. Okay, this is one we'll keep in touch with on the program. As uh, thank you very much, uh, Councillor Deirdre Kelly of Finnafall. Uh, we spoke to Una Ring here uh, almost the day after the court case when her stalker was jailed. And we've spoken to her again since, and she is a remarkable woman. She's a woman of incredible bravery and forthrightness and forgiveness for his family. A remarkable woman. One of the most impressive people I've ever had the pleasure to speak with on this programme. So we're going to keep an eye on this campaign and see, does something actually happen? Because as Deirdre said there, when they did it in the UK... And they split harassment into stalking. They were able to increase prosecutions straight away. 1850-715-996. Call us this show. When the baby is conceived, or maybe both participants are half-pissed. Possibly. And, you know, that happens a lot. Sure, it does, caller. And a lot of the time, there's absolutely no ill effect on the baby at all. But the WHO's warning is, well, that's not the right way to be doing things. 1850-715-996. Betty was on to ask us to thank a man called Stephen O'Brien. Betty was at the driving license centre to renew her license, and she'd brought cash with her to pay. But they don't take cash at the moment. Stephen was behind her in the queue and said, look, he'd pay for it with his card. And Betty then said she'd have to go home and get her other card. But he said, no, no. He said he'd cover it with his card. And she just handed him the cash. And Betty says, we have the best of us here in Cork. Chivalry is not dead and neither is decency. Well, there's now a decent skin. So he's standing behind her in the queue. She's brought cash to pay for her driver's license. They're not taking cash at the moment. You can make of that what you will. I, if you don't have a choice in the driving license centre, I suppose, but I won't, I won't spend my money in a place that doesn't take cash these days. I just won't. It's not, it's not what I do. I like to use my card a lot, and I'm using my card quite a lot, particularly in the last 12 months or so, when cash is discouraged. But no one, no, nowhere should be refusing cash at the moment. It's, cash is real money. And nowhere should be refusing cash. But that's, that's just a divert a small bit. So there she is in the queue with cash in her, her bag to pay for her license. And they're not taking cash. So Stephen is behind her in the queue and goes, look, that's all right. Put that on my card. And she just gave him the cash. That is decency. And Betty just wanted to say to Stephen O'Brien, whoever he is or wherever he's from, Thank you very much. 1850-715-996. Any thoughts on that, by the way? I, I used to. I went completely cashless at the start of all this because we were being told, oh, cash is manky, cash is filthy, and cash is a vector. Cash is not a vector. The WHO say 
that cash, the handling of cash, is not a problem in terms of uh, COVID-19. When all this is over, are we going to go back to using cash like we used to? I sincerely hope that we do. I did it last, I know I've gone down a whole new tangent here now, but just for a second again. I was one of those who sort of conformed in the early days of this and never had any cash in my wallet, always used my card or my phone. And just getting, I'm getting tired of it now. Uh, because now we're going out for a pint and out for a bite to eat. And is it, I'm going to sound like an awful conspiracy theorist here now, but I'm just putting it out there, right? If you go out for a few drinks and you are tapping every round of drink, that data is going somewhere. Those receipts are going somewhere. And I don't, it's none of my bank's business to know whether I'm having two pints or four pints. It's none of my bank's business to know how I spend my money in my leisure time. That's how I kind of feel about it. 1850-715-996. We might discuss this further another day. Many, many surveys coming out now to do with the effect of the pandemic on our lives and our health, physical and mental They did a fascinating study of 500 students at the University of Vermont in the United States. Three quarters of them were female. They were all young students. And they got them to use a phone app. And on that phone app, they asked them to give daily updates on their mood, their stress levels, how they were feeling. And they just put it all together and they collected the data, they collated the data And they did a big report out of it. And the finding of that report, the central finding of that report was that people who were extroverted, outgoing, suffered more under lockdown in terms of their mood and their mental well-being than people who were a bit more maybe quieter and introverted. That it was a bit easier for a person who was quieter and introverted and downbeat to deal with lockdown and to deal with those kind of restrictions than it was for someone who was extroverted and I suppose you, it, it, it makes logical sense outgoing people when you try to put them behind four walls for months on end or weeks and months on end they're going to suffer but here we have from the University of Vermont young people particularly and proof that it did affect them in that way a regular psychologist and a broken child and adolescent psychologist Catherine Hallisey Catherine good morning to you good morning PJ I suppose it makes logical sense doesn't it that those among us who are more outgoing and more, to use that old word, vivacious, are the ones who are going to struggle most with being at home for days and weeks on end. Yeah, I think there are quite a few aspects to this. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was all these jokes going around saying that introverts were preparing for this their whole lives. But they soon realised that they were stuck at home with, some of them ended up stuck at home with housemates who never left. Yeah. So, so I'm interested in that study. I'm wondering um, where those students were living. Did they actually have their own space? Because there are other studies that are showing that introverts didn't fare quite as well yeah. as we would have thought. But look, we all know overall extroverts 
um, they they get uh, such a, you know a good feeling from being around other people. Yeah. And by the very simple fact of not being able to interact in the same way, that has led to a, a dip in mood. It it makes very logical sense. Mm. Well, I suppose something that's been difficult to to get used to. Just speaking very personally here, like this can be a very busy building. In, in, and over the last 16 months, it's a very quiet building. There's just those of us in here who essentially need to be here are just in here. And while they're all great people, I miss the buzz. I miss the other people. And I've had to get used to it, and it hasn't been that easy. Yeah, that's very interesting, you know, what you're talking about offices, because that's something that has certainly come out now that more people are working from home. Introverts are certainly seeming to fare better working from home than extroverts. Extroverts are saying that they really miss the buzz, the people around, the chat, the crack. Um, So, yeah, even something as simple as work practices and the amount of people in buildings has had an impact on many people. Yeah, something else that happens too when you get an opinion poll on, you know, how are you handling the effects of lockdown? Are you prepared to stick with it until, uh, you know, for long term? They, what the opinion polls will tell you is a lot different to what you'll hear on, say, discussion programs because discussion programs are full of, oh, it's too long and it's too hard and it's not yes. necessary. And then the opinion polls say, sorry, no, but I'm prepared to stick with this long term. There's a kind of a difference there, isn't there? I'm always amazed with that, actually, when when you listen to people talking on the radio or on TV, and then if you actually just talk to people out and about the difference. And the vast majority of people are saying that, that they're just going to continue as long as is needed. Mm. Um, but the more we can talk about these kinds of things, like just even about different personality factors. Mm. So um, I think the better... And that we can have, I suppose, discussions on, you know, the people who are dying to get out meeting people again. It's not that they don't care about COVID or don't care about our health system. It's that they have different needs to be around people. Psychologists like yourself study, I guess, mood and reaction. That's part of what you do. And I suppose the pandemic, in a way, will, will feed study of human psychology and the human condition for decades to come. Very much so. Um, I think that um, I'm often wondering what is going to be in the exam papers for the psychology students in 10 years' time about, you know, the use of memes uh, to lift mood during the pandemic. Mm. You know, and all of the little things that we've been doing to cope. You know, and some people love video calls and love Zoom interactions, Mm. but introverts tend to hate them. Really? So, oh, yeah, because it's, you know, like, especially if you can see yourself on the screen and it can feel um, it can feel intimidating. So looking at students, right, let's say you're in a class of 30. Right. And whereas if you're in the classroom, you're facing the board and all of your classmates aren't seeing you. Whereas when you're on the screen, everyone can see you at all times. There is no escape from being seen. I so just that. very subtle little things like that. Yeah. Yeah, you're on on display to everybody, and of course, an introvert doesn't like that. Exactly, you know, and wanting, I suppose, wanting just a few moments to yourself, but you never get that when you're on the screen. And you know, if you're in a meeting yourself as an adult, you can turn off your video for a while if it's a long day. Whereas students aren't allowed to turn off their videos. Yeah. So they're always on. Yeah, that's an interesting point. All right, you know. 
for some people, that would make them very, very uncomfortable. That's actually come up quite a bit in my clinic, actually, in my therapeutic work. Um, some students are highlighting that, that they there's no escape as being a considerable stressor. Crikey, that's very interesting, Catherine. And like we said, it's the effects of the pandemic will form research for many years to come. Always a pleasure to have uh, your wisdom on the opinion line across course. That's uh, child and adolescent psychologist Catherine Halsey. 1850-715-996. The, it's the introversion. People who, you would think, wouldn't you? that those who were quiet and never went anywhere and didn't do a whole pile, that they'd be grand and happy sitting at home with the dog for weeks and months on end. Not quite like that. And you'd have thought that maybe a a Zoom call is less stressful for them than actually meeting people. But no, because the Zoom call, they're on screen all the time. That's fascinating. Absolutely. 185715996. Here's something. This young man contacted me recently and I just wanted to to uh to give him a bit of space because he was on with the program on the program with me before about his music and studying his music. I think he may have even performed for us on the show or certainly had a recording from him. I was always looking to try and fulfill this kind of hole in my heart truth that I found I never could quite fulfill. And I find since finishing college especially, they've kind of drifted around from group to group where I've never quite found that centre where I fit in. But I think this project is the beginning of this process for me. I think it's very powerful as well when the cause that one is fundraising for is directly close to them. Like Adam is autistic, so he set up as I am. I am autistic, so I want to write this song for as I am to represent them as a charity and to represent myself as a musician, singer and a songwriter. Kevin Walsh, good morning. Good morning to you. Good to, good to be back with you on the programme. You, you, you were here with me before, weren't you? I was indeed in 2017. That's right. You went on then to get a first-class honours degree in music. I did, yes, and got top marks three years in a row. Good man. Tell me about Embrace the World. What's it for? So it's a song that I've written and uh, half of the proceeds and royalties will be going towards As I Am, as I was mentioning on the video. And it is my debut single and it is as much about getting myself out there as it is about providing a gesture of hope to autistic people, their families, their carers, their siblings or anyone at all involved in their circle. Where can we get to hear it? Um, it'll be out in a few months from now. So what I have now is a funded campaign to help fund the production because I've lots of artists involved, including Emma Lansford and West End star Molly Lynch and them, all different artists with different voice qualities Brilliant. to reflect autism as a spectrum. So if you look up Embrace the World RSVP Funded, you'll find the campaign page. And you get, every supporter gets something for every pledge. We're just under halfway to our target now with two weeks to go. But you get all the different pledges for different rewards. And like for the 50 euro one, for example, is brilliant. You can get a physical CD, the lyric sheet, a link to the documentary video about the project, plus your credit as a patron. Brilliant. Kevin, keep in touch with me on this one and as soon as the song is ready, let me know and we'll, we'll do our level best to give it a, a spin here on the programme. Good luck with it and we'll give out all the funded de- details. That's Kevin Walsh has written a song for As I Am 
uh, with a super group around him, Emma Langford, for example, and huge stars like that. When we have the song, we'll let you hear it. Good luck to Kevin. Good luck to everyone connected to that. That is it. We've got to get out the gap. Program edited by Fergal Barry today, produced and researched by Maureen Tuig. And we see you tomorrow just after nine. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.